welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cole, and today we have one of uh, the all-time greats. He's a humble guy, so he's, he's probably going to look at me like, don't say that, but 12-time Grammy winner, considered one of the greatest writers and producers ever in the history of music, one of the greats, Mr. Kenny Babyface Edmonds. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. I travel to Indianapolis all the time, and I okay. always stop and smile when I'm on I-65 and I see the sign, uh, the right. Babyface Highway coming into Indianapolis. You are well-beloved in your hometown, so it's always great to see that, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's always still weird. I got a highway. Yeah. <laughs> L.A. was on this podcast before, and I've had mm -hmm. Kenny Gamble, so... You're one of my my uh, you know the greats that I wanted to get on and just talk to. So the backstory podcast, we just really talk a little bit about your journey and your career. And um, I will say I'm going to be a little extra excited because I am a super babyface fan and uh, I've got tons of babyface stories. But just man, I've always just admired you from afar as not just as an artist but as a producer. And so when we go through this, we'll talk about a lot of the songs that you've touched. But uh, yeah. I think most people in America, in the world, have been touched by a song that you created or came up with or wrote or performed. So let's start with your name. So talk a little bit about your connection to the legendary Bootsy Collins and how you got the name Babyface. It's a funny thing because I, I didn't so much have a connection with them. I think I can remember being in a, this group Manchild that, that I was in before the deal. And we had actually did a date with Bootsy. And uh, I think we played on in Daytona, Florida, and uh, we were dying to just meet him and just say hello. And um, I remember we saw him at the hotel and he was walking down the hallway and we said, Boosie, Boosie, can we talk to you for a second? And he just turns out and goes, oh, yeah, baby, X, Y, Z. And then he went in his room. <laughs> that was it. We didn't see him anymore. So I remember him as X, Y, Z. And uh, so it was like I didn't really get a chance to talk to him or meet him then. And so even when he actually gave me the name, it wasn't me, it was LA and KO that were in the studio with him. And they were doing some demos with him sometime in 85. And uh, I just happened to walk in. I don't know that I was even gonna play any guitar or anything, but I just happened to walk in the studio. As soon as I walked in, he looked at me and he goes, baby face. And I didn't know how to react to it. Everybody just started laughing and, uh, and I didn't like the name. So I just kind of left it alone. But he, at that moment, he just kept on calling me Babyface. And we kind of kind of didn't go with it at first. But see, everybody in the deal had a nickname. So there was L.A., there was K.O., there was D., there was Carlos, there was Stick, and then there was Kenny Edmonds. <laughs> and so, <laughs> exactly. So it just didn't flow. And we were looking for a nickname for the longest time. And um, so that didn't flow. But then uh, we went out on tour in 85. I remember doing a song, Sweet November, on stage every night. And as soon as I finished singing the song, D would go give it up to Kenny Evans. And then one night, he says, give it up to Babyface. And that's the first night that I had a whole bunch of girls coming backstage asking, where's Babyface at? Wow. So I changed my name. Got it. No, I get it. <laughs> so let's talk about the deal. So um, you're a part of the deal. You guys are very young. And music was so urban music was just like really flourishing in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And you guys kind of like 
separate because I mean, LA talking, and for those looking, uh, listening, and uh, to this podcast, you can go back to the LA Reed episode when you talked a little bit about this. You and LA really started to click, but one of the songs that you all did was Two Occasions, which is almost the back end of the group, and it comes out and it just explodes across the country. And that's really yeah, the first yeah. time we hear your voice. Talk a little bit about that song and, and about that moment in your career. Yeah, that song is interesting. That song, like, it kind of grew. There was initially D had come up with this that amazing phrase you know i only think of you on two occasions day and night and um but he had it in this song that was completely different and called uh sex on the beach <laughs> and it just made no sense and mm -hmm. i took that phrase i said no 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 we got to take this phrase and put it on something else and uh then i created a track for it and then we started to kind of write it. And there was a couple other writers that ended up being a part of it. Uh, and the song, when it was done, I ended up demoing the song. And um, when and we, I would always do these demos on this, this little four-track Tascam cassette tapes that we do the demos on. And so the demo was done. And we ultimately uh, were in California trying to record this record. And Dee was supposed to sing the whole song. And what happened was that the day that we were we were recording the song, D we were recording it right before Halloween. And D was had a party that he had to go to in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was giving a Halloween party. And he D was famous for giving his party, so he couldn't miss his party. So he said, I can't sing this today and I'm just gonna go ahead and take off and go to Cincinnati. Y'all do what y'all gotta do. So that's actually ultimately how I ended up doing the bridge. That's wow. I wasn't supposed to sing it. So it was because D had a Halloween party. And uh, and I was able to do it. Then Carlos ended up getting a verse on it. And then D came in and finally, you know, finished up the verses. But other than that, it was by accident. Or I won't say by accident. I don't know how you would call that. It was by default. I should say that I ended up singing on the song to begin with. So do you think two occasions changed your life? No question. I think that in many ways, two occasions ultimately became kind of the birth of the whole babyface thing to begin with. Because mm -hmm. we didn't know the power of that song. I didn't know the power of that bridge <laughs> either until we got out and started performing it. And I remember when we were on tour with Luther and DeBarge, you know, we would do our song Body Talk and you know, they'd like it. And, but then they would all say, next up, DeBarge. And the whole place would explode. And we would just feel like... <laughs> Right, And then L would come on stage and the place would just go crazy. It would just rumble. And we just had never experienced that until we did two occasions. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, we saw what it felt like to, to have that feeling. And, and that was your first number one record? I don't think it went number one. I think it went to number two. Oh, wow. Uh, the first number one record would have been uh, The Whispers, Rocksteady. So then you go, you guys, the group sort of breaks up and then you and L.A. get into the partnership that was very historic. And you guys like was running radio at that time. I mean, all of the hit R&B records, you you guys were had your hands on it. I mean, we're talking about the boys, um, the Mac band. <clears throat> then you get into Karen White. But I, I like to talk a little bit about before we get into your albums, the Don't Be Cruel album from Bobby Brown, because I thought that that was just a moment in history where, you know, this is his second album and you and L.A. really wrap your hands around that album. I mean, we're talking Roni, rock with you, um, yeah. every little step. So talk a little bit about that project and your just your creative vision and, and writing your pen on that album. 
You know, it's it's a funny thing because I think the if I'm honest, the the only song that was clearly from the get go written for Bobby was Don't Be Cruel. Um LA had come up with the beat and I, I thought how cool to do a Elvis Presley Don't Be Cruel. And because uh, Bobby just seemed to have that thing about it. But otherwise the other songs like Roni had been written well before. It was like Roni was written in eighty two. Well, I can see you singing that though. Like I can feel like that yeah. could have been a babyface record. It was certainly wasn't one of those things that I had written, and and it wasn't anything I was planning on recording, but it definitely had written way before. Same thing with um, Rock with You. That was written when we were still in Cincinnati. So, a lot of the things were just things that I would write, and they kind of sit around. And every little step was was actually written for Midnight Star. I tried to place it on Midnight Star, and they turned it down. Wow. Um, <laughs> and um, so. A lot of the songs, they were there for Bobby because they were good songs, but, you know, some people would turn things down. And then, and and it's just like things kind of happen where, where songs find people, you know, and um, and the songs were kind of written for them always and I, uh, from, the, from the get-go. And I've always been the kind of uh, writer where, you know, I was looked at it, the song comes first, meaning that the song goes where the person or the artist that can make it come alive. And if they can't do it, then then the song doesn't. It shouldn't be there. Yeah. Well, that I, I would say that that album probably changed your careers as go-to producers because it it was just such a dominant album for almost two years, which never happens anymore. Well, it's it's an interesting thing because you know, from being honest, that album we were able to ride a little bit. I mean, we came with the first single, "Don't Be Cruel," but the thing that really kind of made that album take off was Teddy's "My Prerogative." Mm-hmm. And that that made the album take off, and then that made everybody look at look at the whole album. And there was, unfortunately, it was a deep album for things things to go to. But initially, you know, Teddy had just come off of doing "I Want Her" with Keith Sweat, and then so when my prerogative came, that was just kind of like the sound to go to. So Teddy was definitely hitting harder in the new Jack Swing part, and and you know, from from a writer perspective, we were kind of still coming from the love perspective more. Yeah. Know? My prerogative unlocked the album. That was the key. But once you got inside of it, I mean, that was a pretty, I mean, it was totally unexpected. And it, it was just so many big records after one another. I mean, it was almost a perfect project. So let's talk a little bit about um, about you then. Because um, I, I do, again, I've kind of always been a fan. And I remember when I first got into radio, I was like a kid. And it was like mm-hmm. in, the, in, in 86. And one of those songs I remember was I Love You, Babe. Yeah. in uh, 86 and it was just a different kind of sounding song and this was actually a little this is before yeah. you had all of your your big hits and that first album it didn't like blow people away but it was a really good quality album and then you were on epic so like you got you were on yeah. the same label with with luther vandross and michael jackson and Charday. so what was that like for you in that moment i think initially with i love you babe like that whole album was an album that um did griffey push me to do it wasn't I wasn't even really planning on doing doing the whole artist thing, but Dick Griffey said, well, you keep on doing all these demos for all these songs yeah, and all these other artists. Why don't you do it yourself? Why don't you be an artist yourself? And I said, okay, I'll try it. And so <clears throat> that's why that album is a little bit everywhere. Um, there's like different kind of songs on it that just don't, like you don't know what artist it was supposed to be. But I didn't know what kind of, I didn't know who I should be. I didn't know what I should be because I was a writer. I could write for so many different people i didn't know what kind of artist i could be so that that was a very experimental experimental album 
I think that I love you, babe, definitely still. It always felt good. And I think there was a song Lovers on it, Chivalry. Yeah. yeah. There were some nice little feelings on it. I think that maybe had it come later, it might have done different, but that was so early on. And I'm not even sure. I'm a little unclear whether it was on Epic to begin with, because Dick Griffey was always moving from one label to another. I just, maybe I'm, it wasn't Epic. I mean, I'm, maybe yeah, I'm, I'm off yeah. on that. But but yeah. it was Solar, definitely Solar. Solar, right. So then, so let's let's go to 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 Tender Lover in 1989. Eight weeks at number one. I mean, this was just a massive album. It was even it was your second album, but um, three times platinum. It's no crime. Tender Lover, Whip Appeal. Soon as I get home, Sunshine. Where will you go, brother? That was a monster album. Yeah, it was. That's when I started to understand, you know, that of who I should be as an artist, and 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 I started to hone in on it, you know, to, to that extent. And, and all of that from doing I Love You, Babe, to doing two occasions, uh, going out on the road with the deal and, and seeing how the reaction was, it kind of like helped say, okay, this is, this is who you can be. This is who they accept you being. Because, you know, most of the time as an artist, people have to believe it. You know, you can't just do the songs and, and they have to think that you, that it connects with you and, and it feels honest. And if it doesn't feel honest, then it just, it just doesn't work. And that's when my blessing is that I've always had being able to write for other artists that could pull out that honesty. If I couldn't do it, then they could, and the other artists could. Yeah. And, and so uh, that album obviously was just, a, you know, a, a bit, you became a superstar and, but you were still producing. So like, yeah. Like then we get into the nineties and before we get to your second album, which was another monster album, you produce all of these great songs or write, write them like, Let's talk about Can We Talk from Tevin Campbell. Talk about that one. Yeah, Can We Talk is a song that really came because um, I had written this other song called I'm Ready that Tevin recorded. Yeah, great song. And that song I had actually written in uh, high school. And so I finally pulled it back out. And when Quincy Jones had called and asked if I would work on Tevin Campbell, I just couldn't believe Quincy Jones called me and asked me to work on something. So I... So immediately I thought I'm ready would be great for her because that was something I wrote in high school. And then um, then after I finished that and I handed that in to Quincy, he was so excited. He said, you got to give me you got to give me a couple more. Give me something, you know, even stronger. And I like so I immediately started working, working on the Can We Talk. And uh, so it was specifically written for Tevin Campbell, which is a question about whether whose album that was. But the whole project that I wrote for Tevin Campbell was for Tevin Campbell because it was a request from Quincy Jones. And I was just, once again, I was, I was such a fan of Quincy and just couldn't believe that he was even talking to me. So then you guys also in this moment, you guys get into the soundtrack business too, because there's just so many uh, opportunities to collectively produce uh, artists. Yes. And you guys did the boomerang soundtrack, which again yes. was an introduction for, Tony Braxton, so you could talk a little about Tony, but also End of the Road, which ended up becoming yes. one of the biggest songs ever. Talk a little bit about that song. Well, you know, Boomerang happened because we had watched uh, New Jack City, mm-hmm. and they had such a big, you know, such success with it. Like, we wanted to get one of those, have one of those, and I think Jimmy and Terry, they went out and found found the soundtrack as well. I think it was More Money. Yeah, uh, and, More Money, uh, More Problems, yep. Yeah, and uh, so we were like, and we need to get us one. And so um, we met with Reggie Hudlin and uh, and actually got okay for Eddie Murphy for us to do it because Eddie had to 
okay, whoever was going to do it. So at that point, it was definitely a new world for us trying to, you know, come up with. And I think we may, I may, may have played some things on some soundtracks, but not do the whole soundtrack before. Yeah. Uh, but that so, was like a big album. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, End of the Road was was massive, but also Love Should Have Brought You Home. And that was yeah. really, yeah, we the introduction to Tony Braxton. It ended up becoming that. We didn't necessarily know it mm-hmm. at the time that it would become that. So I think that the whole thing with, like, for example, uh, End of the Road, it was song strictly, I strictly wrote it for a scene that I saw in the movie. Uh, and, and, you know, there was the idea that Boys and the Men would sing it. And so I was excited about that because I heard their voices. I thought they could sing this really well. And actually, when I finished the song, I said, "Wow, do I need to keep this for myself?" Because it felt really good. But they clearly took it to yeah. another level, and it was like it was it was made for them. And I think ultimately, it was it was just kind of it was a moment where we kind of saw that we were kind of like made to work together. Once we worked together, it was just that easy that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it formed from there. And then with, uh, obviously, Love Should Have Brought You Home, it was like looking at that one scene with Holly Berry. She said, Love Should Have Brought Your Ass Home last night. Oh, that's a song. And then, you know, immediately went back to the house. I remember we were at L.A.'s house, and me and Bo Watson, Daryl Simmons, we sat down there and wrote that song right then and there after seeing that film. So things just kind of like were just... You know, you just kind of get in a zone where these things are just kind of come up. And initially, when that song was written, we were writing with Anita Baker in mind. So we really tried to get that on Anita Baker. And she turned it down and basically sent back the message, why don't you get that little girl that did the demo? Because Tony did the demo. That and, sounds like how Anita would say it, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, why don't y'all try that little girl that did the demo? She, yeah. she sounded good. Yeah. So... Uh, and and that was really it. Tony's career started off by, you know, leftovers. <laughs> yeah. You, you mean the world to me as well. Was uh, tr- We tried that a second try to do for Nina. She passed on that one too. Wow. And, uh, so, but then, you know, the rest of it, you know, Tony, you know, her voice was so, she, so, um, so Tony Braxton. It's just, she just had the, all this emotion that came and felt new and felt exciting. And I think that um, we believed in Tony from the get-go. We thought that she had this this voice. But once again, it's never anything, for me at least, I can say for myself, it was never anything that I thought was automatic. And yeah. everything was a surprise. Whenever we would get hits with it, I'm like, that's amazing. No one could have foresaw uh, End of the Road doing what it did. The stars aligning in that sense. So then, you know, Tony obviously has a great debut album, like 10 yeah. times platinum, and then she has a great follow-up. And then you got all these massive songs, another sad love song, Breathe Again. Yes. How does your mind work? Because it feels like you're always writing a song. Like, is, are you, like, is it that the way it is for you? Like, you just have a song idea, and then it's like, boom, you, you write it down? Yeah, a lot. I, I was, it was constantly just kind of writing things and, and, and demoing things and like, um, and sometimes the songs were meant for an artist that were, were written specifically for an artist, and many times it wasn't. Another sad love song. Actually, I wrote that for TLC, and uh, but it didn't ultimately vibe, so Tony Braxton ended up doing it. So there would be things sometimes that were meant for other people, but you know, when I thought about it, it, it made more sense to go on someone else. And that's always that's always been the case. And when I think about it, and when I look back at things, it is hard to believe that I wrote I wrote that many songs in all that time period, you know. But I think that's all I ever did was just sitting in my 
sitting in my closets and in my room, whatever, where my little studio was at the point. I was just always writing songs and putting ideas down so, to where there were always plenty of songs to go to, even though they were just pieces of things, but things to go to, to, you know, if someone needed a song to start to write from. All right, let's talk about My, 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 Johnny Gill. My, My, My was a song that was another one that was originally not supposed to be on Johnny. The Whispers really wanted the song, but I think my memory's right. They were, it was a budget issue and they um, they wanted something like three songs. And I think that when we were thinking about doing it, it just wasn't enough money at the time or something, <laughs> something to that effect. It gets a little, little cloudy in that memory on that part. Sure. And then it was going to be on After 7, but they couldn't make it to the studio one day to to record it on the day that we were going. That's why they were actually on the backgrounds of my, my, my. And um, so then Johnny Gill came by and we said, Johnny, why don't you try singing the song? And when he got on it, it was his. It was always meant to be Johnny Gill's. You know, I can't imagine anybody else singing it now at this particular point. Johnny was amazing and, and it's, um, I'm so glad that it made it to him because it, it made the song the standard, you know. Well, you mentioned um, After Seven, which is your brother in yes. the group, and your your fifth out of six brother, six uh, siblings, and it must have been a lot of pressure because you're having all the success, and it's like, oh, well, you're going to give a song to your brother and his group, and it's like ready or not, and can't stop. Like, did you feel yeah. any pressure just having to do a song for your brother, and and uh, you gave him a hell of a, a start to the music business? Yeah. Uh, so my bro- both my brothers, Melvin and uh, Kevin. And I don't know if it was a question of pressure. I definitely, it was a question of trying to make sure I got songs that made their voices, that lifted their voices. Right. Where they lifted the song. So it's like, I don't think like My, My, My would have been for them, but like Ready or Not certainly wouldn't have been for Johnny Gill. And because it was the, it was the two punch that I always worked with Melvin and Kevin. Melvin would come on first and Kevin would come on that high voice and just, you know, take it the rest of the way. And, We've talked about it many times. We talk about it all the time. They really came in at a good time when I was just writing some good songs. You know, um, I don't know what it was at the time. I don't know what was in the air at the time, but there was just really stuff that was just feeling good at that point. And, and the songs were just coming. And, and they, they got a lot of good ones in that case, in that sense. Yeah. So let's talk about Karen White. Yes. Huge artist, superwoman, love saw it. People don't talk about Karen White enough, but her album was... Yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great album, and she was, uh, really, she's a really good artist. She, um, the, our first single was "The Way You Love Me." Yeah, and um, and I, I, I remember she just, she just had a thing about how a swing to her voice, and there was "Secret Rendezvous," which I loved, and mm-hmm. and "Family Man," and, and as I'm thinking about it, and so I, it was, it was one of those albums that I really loved in terms of the the writing and everything. And then, of course, Superwoman. I wanted to, I wanted to write this anthem for women, you know. Um, and there was one song that always hit me—a song called uh, by Fifth Dimension called that I think Bert, Bert Bacharach wrote, uh, "One Less Bell to Answer." Mm-hmm. And Classic. I remember hearing that song and the simplicity of "One Less Bell to Answer," "One Less Ache to Fry," "One Less Man to Pick Up After." I should be happy, but all I do is cry. I said, "Oh my God." So I like said, I want to write me a song like that. And, um, and that's how the lyrics are. Early in the morning, I put breakfast at your table. Make sure that your coffee has its sugar and cream. 
your eggs over easy, toast them lightly. All that's missing is the morning kiss. And so it was, it was like poetry. And I was like trying to think of those, give that same kind of feeling, you know, but I wanted to go a little more into it as well, but to, for something for women to feel like, you know, I'm, I'm not here to do everything for you. And so and I'm not, I'm not your superwoman, but ultimately she should, she should have been a superwoman, should have been superwoman. I wanted to tweak it later, but it was too late. The song was already out. Yeah. Yeah. But timeless. It's a timeless song. So um, many years later, because I think about End of the Road and how long that was a hit. That was like one of those songs that just wouldn't go away and it broke records. You're yes. a part of another song like that. And it's Mariah Carey, We Belong Together. Yeah, that was really uh, I, funny enough. That was just because she she said two occasions in the song and my baby, baby face. And I was only part of it for sample reasons. And so I don't really claim that one. Uh, my name's on it, but I don't claim it because it's like <laughs> I didn't really sit down and write right with it. I, I claim it for you because it's just your inspiration. <laughs> you inspired yeah. it, and it would just be <laughs> even though somebody else did it, it's such a masterful record, and it, and it ended record. up breaking the record of of End of the Road. Yeah, it's a great record. Yeah, uh, and so was One Sweet Day that they did. Um, yeah, together with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah, and so then you get to um, your second album. So we talked a little bit about songs that you produced. You get to your second album, and For the Cool in You is just huge. I mean, you know, another three times platinum album. Talk a little bit about you preparing for that second album after such a big first album. Tender Lover was your second album. Then they uh, reissued your first album. And then you come with, in 93, you come back with um, uh, For the Cool in You, which, you know, so many great whip appeals, Soon As I Get Home, all of these big monster records. Talk a little bit about that project. So I think that like the, for the cool and you, like Tender Lover was certainly the, the album that where I started to figure it out, you know, mm-hmm. from, with Whip Appeal and as soon as I get home and, and even uh, give it a chance. And it was just classic babyface, if I can say that. But mind you, all, all this time while I'm doing this, I'm, I'm still producing and, and working on other things. So I would only think of it in terms of an album and so much as the artist. And I might do the videos, but I wasn't going out supporting these things and, you know, uh, and going out on the road and really trying to um, build up my artistry because I was in the studio. It was, um, that was the whole thing of just to constantly keep on, I was in the studio and working and then ultimately working on the label. Yeah. You were, you were a machine. You were, you were like spitting it out, man. So it wasn't, my thing is, um, I just kept working at that point, as you say, as a work hard, so to say, and 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 coming from that, then when when ultimately when it was time to do like for the cool and you, I just figure out again, okay, what can I do as an artist to do this record? And at all that point, you know, it wasn't like I didn't tour until 1995, I think, with Boyz II Men. So everything else, all that I was doing was really all part of just thinking of my artist as a studio artist, so to say. So. And so with For the Cool and You, I was just trying to think of a vibe. Then um, For the Cool and You, there was also every time I closed my eyes, and there was When Can I See You. And so th- those were the things that were kind of like the standouts. And, and meanwhile, you know, I, I think most of the time I just, it would all, these were all be part of songs that I didn't necessarily write for other people, but really just would write for myself. And it was very few times when I would write something for myself that I would ultimately put it on another artist because it would usually be so much me that that's what it would. Well, I mean, I, I remember seeing you on tour. That was, I've only seen you perform one time and that was in 95. And I remember the, I think you had a white piano 
it was just it was a it was a grand show and what made it special was i kind of like that about artists when they do that like we weren't overexposed to babyface so we enjoyed that moment and um that's the only time I've ever seen you, but it was just like yeah. just a classic moment for you to go through all of those songs. And I think about my life during that time yeah. and how much your music really kind of really tells a story of that time period. And so you just, you know, you continue to uh, to make all of these great songs over the years. You you even delve into hip hop. I Listen, when you did Sunshine with Jay-Z. <laughs> I was like, OK, like that, like, no, you were such a big star in that moment that we were all surprised to hear you on a song because Jay-Z had not, this was Jay-Z's second album. Yeah. So yeah. He, he hadn't really ascended to what he is today. But what made you choose to do that song? And that was such a great song, a great hook. To be honest, that was, a, I wasn't v- very aware of Jay-Z, but Andre Harrell kind of said, you know, you need to do this guy a favor. He's going to be big and just do him a favor. I didn't care if he was going to be big. Andre told me to do it. So I ended up doing it. And it was, it was that simple to be honest. Um, and obviously Jay-Z became Jay-Z. But it was always fun. It's always fun to do those things and always fun to work with different artists, what whatever genre they're in. Because I, I like, you know, I'm a musician first. And uh, and I think a musician should be able to do more than one kind of thing. And being a producer and a writer, it allows you to do that, opposed to just being an artist that just puts out drum songs. Yeah. And then you did a song um, from the classic Little Wayne Carter album, yeah, yeah, Comfortable, which I don't think a lot of people talk about that record, but that's a really good song. Like, it's one of my favorite Little Wayne songs, and, and that was his best album ever. But it was, a, it was refreshing to hear you on that hook and just hear that song in that, in that moment. Yeah, that was fun to do. We did that with, actually did that with Kanye. And then it ended up... Yeah, Kanye produced it. Yeah, 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 for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so it was great. Yeah. So over the years, you've done a lot of these collaboration albums and uh, you did one with uh, Tony Braxton. And talk a little bit about the current project that you're working on um, that you have out. So end up doing Girls Night Out was a project that I did. My frame of mind was that I wanted to work with younger female artists and R&B girls, some that were more known and some that weren't. And mm-hmm. but work with them much like I did on the XL project. But this time to collaborate with them, to actually write with them and write with younger producers as well. So that I would make sure that it was, you know, um, that it was cohesive and it felt like today as well. I didn't want to be sounding like the 90s a little bit. So of course, it, yeah. so the collaboration was ended up being great. And as a matter of fact, I think we're going to do a deluxe and add on uh, four more of the girls and keep on keep that process going. And, and who are you working with? Like, are you, uh, I'm, I'm sure you still got a million songs in your head. Are there some coming, forthcoming uh, artists that you're working with? Well, not so much. I'm, there's a few artists that I'm working with that are pretty name artists, that, but I don't kind of like to tell that ahead of time. But sure. I'm in the studio right now. And it's been great. You know, I, I'm, I'm actually probably doing more writing than, uh, than I've done in a while. And uh, it's been fun just kind of doing this all again. Well, Babyface, man, I just want to thank you for your time. I know you're really busy. And again, you know, you are a a music historian in a sense. Just just the quality of songs that you've been able to put out over the years and how you've influenced so many other people. And I'm just glad that we had a chance to get you on the backstory. And uh, uh, I mean, you know, listen, man, what what a great career. And you're not even done. Like, there's so much more you have to do and, and give to the world. So I'm looking forward to hearing what's next. Thank you, man. I appreciate it a lot. So it's 
Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you as well. Thank you. Baby face. The Backstory Podcast with Colby Cole is an Urban One Incorporated Reach Media Pod is Good production, hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Cole, edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at BackstoryPCC, on Instagram, Get the Backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed, for sales and corporate partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gaynor, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.